You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Welcome. I'm all that stands between you guys and lunch, so uh, I will stay on time, and there will be time at the end for questions. Uh, so we're going to discuss uh, comorbidities of acne and rosacea, fact or fiction. So I will admit, before preparing for this lecture for you all today, uh, this was not something I necessarily spent much time thinking about. So uh, I found some interesting data, and I hope you guys find it interesting as well. So disclosures, I must tell you, I am a member of the speaker bureaus for Celgene, Galderma, Janssen, Novartis, and Promius. So before we move on to the actual comorbidities of rosacea, let's just start with the pathophysiology of the disease. So when I started in dermatology 16 or 17 years ago, I was taught by my supervising physician that rosacea is primarily a vascular disorder and it involves this flushing syndrome where one's blood vessels in their superficial skin on their face dilate and constrict, and over time, these blood vessels become dilated and causing what your patients most commonly refer to as broken capillaries. Uh, Possibly there was a role of demodex mites, and this could be thought because the flushing increases the heat or the temperature of the skin. It can encourage growth of these mites. So it turns out, you know, years later, that's probably not exactly what's going on, but maybe they were on to something. So rosacea is primarily a inflammatory disorder, and it's a dysregulation of both the innate and the adaptive immune system, also involving neurovascular changes. And we'll go more into detail about what these are shortly. So the associated comorbidities of rosacea involve multiple body systems, and I thought this would be probably the easiest way to break this down. So as we go through the discussion today, we'll address each body system. So cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, neurologic, psychiatric, and malignancies. So this is the audience response question. So I'm going to pose the question to you. Do you screen for comorbidities of rosacea in your patients? Always, sometimes, never. And lastly, what are comorbidities? I will be honest, before I did this uh, discussion for you today, I would have definitely voted D. I did not screen for these prior to doing this. So it looks like at least you guys knew what comorbidities are, but never screened for them, at least the majority of you. It's like quiz music. I guess you're done voting. So it looks like the majority, sometimes or never. So the pathogenesis between comorbidities and rosacea, this is the similar biological mechanism that leads to the disease state. And there's common pathways for this to happen. The innate immune system, the adaptive immune system, and neurologic. So the innate immune system, this is a nonspecific defense mechanism. It's simply our our skin. It's a barrier. It keeps good things in and bad things out. And then cytokines and immune cells that basically indiscriminately kill invaders. 
Our adaptive immune system is a little bit more complex. It's protection from an infectious agent and mediated by B and T lymphocytes, and it follows an exposure to a specific antigen, a virus, a parasite, and it helps our body develop a specific immune response to that infectious agent. So rosacea shares a common immune pathway with the reported comorbidities. So, you know, we just talked about these immune pathways, the innate, the adaptive, and the neurogenic. And you can see there's lots of overlap. Uh, hold on. This is trying to get the little clicker here. Oh, the mouse here. This is what I use. So the innate uh, immune system, you can see a lot of these fall under more than one category. So inflammatory bowel disease is both under innate and adaptive, uh, as are, you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cardiovascular disease. Migraines are under neurogenic, and that's kind of in a category by itself. So the shared pathophysiology of rosacea and comorbidities uh, this is the similar disordered physiologic process that leads to the disease or injury. So this is where it's mediated by inflammation, vascular, or neurological. So rosacea shares a common general pathophysiology with these comorbidities. So again, we have inflammation, neurological, and vascular. And we see overlap with you know, multiple uh, disease states like inflammatory bowel disease is found both under inflammation. Uh, neurological uh, has Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, which are also under inflammatory. And then we have common environmental triggers. So these are things that both are common in rosacea patients as well as some of the comorbidities that we'll discuss later. So fair skin type, lifetime ultraviolet, uh, ultraviolet light exposure, and increased BMI, psychological stress, and infection. So this is a graph where on the left side of the graph we have the risk factors, uh, some of which we just uh, talked about, and then across the top there's different comorbidities. So migraine, anxiety, and depression, uh, and you can see a lot of them have multiple factors. So psychological stress, we can see migraines, anxiety and depression, uh, MS, diabetes fall under these categories as well. So it's somewhat of a busy slide, but I think just to step back and look at the bigger picture that essentially there's multiple risk factors and multiple comorbidities and they share those things in common. So cardiovascular comorbidities. So we'll go over them individually. There's hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and dyslipidemia. The level of evidence. So when you review studies, and I was looking for data, how, how strongly these were correlated, I looked at the number of studies that showed positive correlation between rosacea and the comorbidity. So cardiovascular disease had five, and most of them had a positive correlation between cardiovascular disease and rosacea. Both diabetes and metabolic syndrome had one study each with a positive correlation and zero with a negative correlation. Hypertension had two with a positive correlation and zero with a negative correlation. And dyslipidemia had three with a positive correlation and zero with negative. So hypertension. Part of my objectives for this discussion were how can we be screening for these in our practices? 
Now, hypertension is easy to screen for. You simply check one's blood pressure. Uh, in my clinic, we do have a blood pressure cuff, and it is battery-operated, and most of the time, the batteries do work, and there is a staff member that does know how to operate it correctly. We usually only get it out if someone's complaining, I think my blood pressure is really high, I have a headache, so we kind of use it for that. We do not routinely check blood pressure. Um, you can simply ask a patient what current medications they're on. I find in my experience you can ask a patient, do you have any medical issues or do you have any uh, diseases that you're on treatment for? And sometimes they'll say no, and then you'll look in their chart and see this list of medications. There's 20 medications, and you'll ask them, well, you take lisinopril, do you take that for high blood pressure? And they'll say, well, no, I don't have high blood pressure. So, you know, I think sometimes it's when you ask a patient, they may not think they have that disease because they're taking a medication that's treating it. So I find that looking at their current medications is often more helpful than specifically asking them what medical diseases they suffer from. And then hypertension is thought to be linked with rosacea through the adaptive immune system. Cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is the second most common comorbidity, second only to depression for rosacea patients. Um, and it's increased in rosacea patients even when you control and adjust for hypertension and diabetes. So this is another one where your screening tools can simply be looking at their medications, asking them about their family history, and the correlation is stronger with severe rosacea. So the more severe one's rosacea is, the more likely they are to suffer from cardiovascular disease. So treatment with low-dose doxycycline is thought to possibly mitigate the risk of cardiovascular disease for its anti-inflammatory effect. And it also may be uh, beneficial for these patients to also be on a low-dose 81-milligram aspirin regimen which could mitigate their risk of cardiovascular disease uh, simply because they have rosacea. So dyslipidemia, again, the screening tools are fairly simple, looking at their you know, past medical history, their family history. Uh, you know, currently with our electronic medical record uh, system, this is part of this meaningful use, so we do ask for uh, you know, these questions, we ask them what medicines they're on, their past medical history, and even a family history. Uh, so even though it's annoying and the staff, you know, puts up a fight about it, it, it actually does have some benefit. Um, although you always get the argument from the patient, why are you asking me if I got my flu shot? What does that have to do with anything? Um, so dyslipidemia is thought to be part of the adaptive immunity pathway. So gastrointestinal comorbidities, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, and bacterial growth in the small intestine were the most common. Uh, inflammatory bowel disease, again, simply reviewing one's past medical history, are they on medications for it? Oftentimes this will come up in my discussion with patients if I'm talking to them about, about certain medications that could also cause, you know, concomitant uh, gastrointestinal issues. I might ask someone, um, you know, maybe a little bit of history. Do they have trouble taking medications? Are they prone to nausea or vomiting, diarrhea? Um, so this is a way that you can screen for inflammatory bowel disease. So the pathophysiology here is inflammation. It's occurring on both the surface of the skin as well as the mucosal surfaces in the bowel. 
And it's interesting that the rates of inflammatory bowel disease are inversely proportional to antibiotic use. So, you know, oftentimes I think of these tetracycline antibiotics as possibly causing some gastrointestinal issues, but it's thought that, or it's been shown that patients that are on these tetracyclines that are lowering inflammation often have a lower rate of inflammatory bowel disease and also part of the innate immune reaction. So celiac disease. This is a very specific uh, gastrointestinal disease. Uh, here in Seattle, we tend to have a very natural population. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Sidbury's talk, and when he asked the petrolatum question, I get asked that every single day, and I'm always asked if coconut oil, organic coconut oil, uh, is a good moisturizer. So um, this study looked at celiac disease specifically, and I think, you know, I don't know how it is across the rest of the country, but I have a lot of patients that are gluten-free simply because they feel that gluten is unhealthy or, or bad for them, but they don't specifically have celiac disease. So I think it's important to know that there are screening tests specifically to diagnose this disease. Um, the link between celiac disease and rosacea is unknown, um, but in a, in a rosacea patient that is complaining of gastrointestinal uh, complaints, it's, it's worth a workup probably uh, sending them to primary care. And I also find, um, you know, printing off a, a copy of your last visit note and just simply sending it or faxing it to a primary care is probably sufficient. Uh, or even writing a note for a patient to present to their primary care doctor uh, to let them know that this might be something of concern and that they could look into it further. So H. pylori infection, uh, rosacea patients in general report symptoms of indigestion more frequently than patients that do not have rosacea. Uh, but when they did serological testing for H. pylori in the rosacea patients versus non-rosacea patients, uh, it did not show an increased risk of H. pylori infection per se, although uh, these patients did complain of indigestion more frequently. So the neurologic comorbidities. Uh, we'll go over new onset migraine, Parkinson's disease, dementia, glioma, and facial dystonia. So new onset migraine. This is more common in female patients and those that are suffering from ocular rosacea. And you'll find there's a couple of these comorbidities that are more common in the ocular rosacea subset of patients. Um, the vascular abnormality pathway that's common in both rosacea and a migraine is thought to be uh, the common trigger here. Uh, also, alcohol and stress can trigger both uh, diseases, migraines as well as rosacea. Parkinson's disease. So the associated uh, pathogenesis here are MMPs, which I told myself I would say out loud one time. It's matrix metalloproteinases, which will, for the rest of this discussion, be referred to as MMPs. Uh, and this contributed to dopaminergic neuronal loss. So there's a Danish cohort study um, between 1997 and 2011 with over 100,000 patients, and it showed an increased incidence of Parkinson's disease in rosacea patients. And in ocular rosacea patients, it was almost a two-fold increase. So again, this is not something that I was necessarily aware of before I did this presentation. Uh, so it's just interesting to note that since I've prepared this, I've, I've tried to kind of be mindful of this in my discussions with rosacea patients and paying special attention to their past medical history. So, uh, you know, I think it's something that would be 
interesting. And, you know, if you have patients that are complaining or you're noticing a new onset of a tremor, definitely probably worth having them see their primary care for further workup. Uh, but tetracycline therapy that you would use to treat the rosacea did appear to reduce the risk of developing Parkinson's, which, uh, again, I couldn't find much data to support this, but uh, it was shown in the uh, cohort study that the patients that were on tetracycline therapy had a reduced risk of developing Parkinson's. So dementia. Uh, Rosacea and dementia share a common pathogenesis of an upregulation of MMPs and antimicrobial peptides. it was significantly associated with Alzheimer's dementia in particular. Uh, and this I thought interesting because I think, you know, when you work in a clinic for a long time and you see patients over years and years, uh, you will start to notice possibly a decline in their cognition. Um, and sometimes it's fairly profound. You may, you know, see someone start seeing them in their 50s and they're driving themselves to their appointments. They're coming in by themselves. And over the years, you may notice they're now, you know, in the appointment with a caregiver, whether it's a spouse or an outside caregiver, uh, and notice a difference in cognition. Um, Or, you know, you'll have a visit, you'll follow up with them a couple months later, and the information you're going over with them that you're certain you went over with them two months ago seems brand new to them, and they don't know what you're talking about. Uh, So I think this is a case where you know, it might be warranted to document this in your note and send it to a primary care doctor for them to review. So glioma, this was also associated with an upregulation of MMPs. That same Danish cohort study showed uh, an incidence rate of glioma, uh, and the reference population was 3.34 and 4.99 in the rosacea patients. Facial dystonia. This shares both immune and inflammatory pathways. And I think a lot of this information, you know, I could find small amounts of it. There was no controlled studies, uh, to my knowledge, that I was able to find. There was a great uh, article review in the JAD uh, that's uh, in the list of references at the end that essentially went over all of this stuff and I found to be very useful and gave other references for, you know, individual articles that might be of more uh, importance for you. So the psychiatric comorbidities. So this is one that I think we probably all are aware of and maybe get the most feedback from our patients about. Um, If you've ever gone on the National Rosacea website, they have these boards where patients can, um, you know, talk about their disease. And I think it's really eye-opening if you've never gone on there and looked at what patients say. Um, I think these are patients that are so affected by their disease that they you know, will cancel a job interview. They'll cancel social plans. They, you know, purposely don't go out of their house during certain times of the day. They wouldn't dream of going out for a glass of wine with their friends because they're so embarrassed by their redness. Um, So social anxiety, depression, and then just simply a decreased quality of life for these patients. So social anxiety uh, has definitely been linked with uh, rosacea, and the flushing and erythema can increase during periods of anxiety. So if they already feel anxious about their disease and then they're in a situation where, you know, that's exacerbated, it can make that even worse. Um, Patients that had papular pustular eruptions and rhinophyma were more likely themselves to report being rejected by others. 
So depression, uh, there was a study, it's still available online, uh, and it was dated 1968, which is 50 years ago. Uh, rosacea patients were found to be more depressed than control subjects. Um, and it was like this big, bold headline that, you know, someone found this earth-shattering message that rosacea patients suffer from depression, which I think all of us in this room would not question that finding. Um, and the link here, you know, aside from just they are self-conscious of the way they look, which could then lead to depression, uh, it was an increase in serum MMPs and inflammatory pathways. Um, so much so that, you know, screening for depression or simply listening to what your patients are telling you, um, I'll often ask that question when I'm seeing a rosacea patient, has your skin disease ever caused you to cancel social plans? Uh, and I'm shocked. I would say most of them, even those with fairly minor rosacea, say yes, uh, and men as well as women. Um, so screening for depression, you know, again, referring to primary care for possible treatment of their depression, and then, uh, you know, looking at support groups, which there are some available online. Uh, there might be some available in your area um, as part of their holistic treatment. So decreased quality of life. Uh, I think this is a very concrete way that we can uh, ascertain how one's disease burden affects them. Uh, so depression, social anxiety, and feeling of rejection by others uh, multiple studies have shown this to be the case uh, revolving around rosacea. So malignancies. Uh, thyroid cancer and basal cell carcinoma are the two malignancies that have been associated with uh, rosacea. Thyroid cancer is not only the most common endocrine cancer, uh, but it's also uh, linked with rosacea. The pathogenesis of thyroid cancer uh, is an inflammatory response, immune function, and ionizing radiation can be a factor uh, for patients that develop thyroid cancer. And there was an interesting question brought up, one to which I could not find a definitive answer, but a lot of uh, commonly used radiotherapy procedures to reduce redness, uh, dilated blood vessels uh, in our rosacea patients, you know, is it possible that radiotherapy from these treatments could be linked with thyroid cancer. And like I said, I, I don't know the answer to that, but it was a question that was brought up. And basal cell carcinoma, obviously this is common in fair-skinned fair Caucasian people, as is rosacea. Um, but rosacea patients in general did report an increased exposure to ultraviolet light early in their life. Uh, and I think basal cell carcinoma patients do as well. So this could possibly be a common environmental trigger for both disease states. And then the autoimmune diseases, both rheumatoid arthritis and type 1 diabetes uh, are uh, commonly seen in rosacea patients. As far as, uh, you know, what factors, that first graph I showed uh, at the beginning that had all the X's on it, there were a lot of common environmental triggers or lifestyle factors that could be the issue here, but there has not been uh, a causal pathogenesis or pathophysiology link that's been established. So the comorbidities of acne. Uh, when I started preparing for this talk, uh, aside from getting a schooling on PowerPoint from my 11-year-old daughter, uh, I, I thought the comorbidities of acne would be probably a larger portion of this talk, and I might learn some new things. Um, but actually, the comorbidities of rosacea were very eye-opening to me, that there were some very serious disease states that you know, were seen much more commonly in rosacea patients uh, than in the general population. 
So the comorbidities of acne. So before we delve into that, we'll just simply talk about the pathophysiology of acne. So when I'm discussing this with acne patients, because they always want to know, why me? What am I eating? And why do I have acne? Um, I'll kind of go over with them these four bullet points. So acne is a disease that you probably are not causing. Uh, It's a dysregulation of your keratinocytes. Essentially, I'll I'll tell them, your keratinocytes are too sticky. They stick on top of each other, causing plugged pores, and then you develop whiteheads and blackheads. And inflammation. Uh, Inflammation is a word I use all the time in my practice. Um, I work in an area uh, probably 20 minutes south of here that we see a lot of uh, Boeing workers, a lot of teachers. So it's a fairly educated population. Um, But sometimes I'll use the word inflammation and I'll be met with a blank stare. So, uh, you know, when it relates to acne, I'll simply say a red painful bump. That's what inflammation means. Uh, Abnormal sebum production or an increased oil production, and then growth of P. acne's bacteria. So the comorbidities of acne, uh, they're psychiatric, ENT, some of the data was British and they use the word sinopulmonary, and gastrointestinal. So this graph has three sections. The top section is sinopulmonary or ENT, uh, and you can see here the black columns represent patients that have severe acne. The white columns are patients that have no severe acne, but they could still have acne. And this data was from uh, about 10,000 patients in the Kaiser system that uh, were their charts were reviewed to find this data. So when you look at these specific diseases, sinus infection, uh, strep throat, which is an actual cultured strep infection, and then other sore throat, asthma, other lung disease, hay fever, and respiratory allergy, all of these are found in increased rates in your severe acne population. The second bar here, these are gastrointestinal diseases. Uh, You have reflux and heartburn, abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, uh, diarrhea, colitis, recurring constipation, and food and digestive allergy. So again, you're seeing these black columns that are much greater in your patients that have severe acne than those that have no severe acne. And lastly, psychological distress or disease. Uh, We have depression, anxiety, ADD and ADHD, which they're generally found um, lumped together, although they are separate diseases. You'll commonly find them, you know, slash ADD slash ADHD, insomnia and phobias. So psychiatric, depression, attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and insomnia. So the link